Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, continuing our ongoing conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today, I want to ask an obvious and simple question. Do you have enough volunteers to staff your ministry? And the answer is no. It is harder and harder these days to find volunteers to take on significant ministry responsibilities. I remember uh, when I first started out in ministry leadership, we had something in the church called a nominating committee. And the nominating committee's responsibility was to make sure that every role and responsibility in the church was filled by a volunteer worker and to make sure that those volunteers were uh, not burdened down with too many people doing too few jobs and to aggressively work to enlarge the volunteer pool by uh, cultivating, developing, and bringing more people into the volunteer team a nominating committee. Well, that committee structure has largely gone by the wayside in most churches, but every church still needs an intentional strategy, an intentional plan to raise up, facilitate, deploy more volunteers in ministry leadership. Now, while I've written a number of books on leadership, a few years ago I started really being captivated more and more by the importance of the followers in the relationship. I even wrote a book about that called Shadow Christians, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. And that book is really not focused on leaders so much as it's focused on all of the followers who do so much of the important work of ministry leadership and really who are not frequently known or acknowledged, hence the title of the book, Shadow Christians, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. But the question for the day for this podcast is, as a ministry leader, how can you facilitate more volunteers uh, coming into ministry leadership, uh, coming into ministry activity, and making the commitment to carry on the important work of your church or your organization? Well, let's start by thinking about some theological themes that undergird this important work of volunteers. First, the church is an all-volunteer organization. Everyone volunteers to be a part of the church. There is no mandatory church membership. Everyone volunteers. And so if we're going to start to develop people as volunteers, I think one of the ways that we raise the value of volunteerism and the value of volunteers on our own thinking is to understand that everyone is a volunteer that's a part of this wonderful, miraculous movement called the church. Another uh, theological theme that undergirds the importance of volunteers is the priesthood of all believers. Now, the priesthood of all believers means that every believer has equal access to God, but more than that, has equal opportunity to represent others to God and a responsibility to represent God to others. That's what a priest does. A priest represents God to people and people to God. And so when we say that all believers are priests, we're saying that all believers have equal access, equal stature, equal opportunity before God to represent other people to God and represent God to other people. And so volunteers have this high value because they are priests. They are part of the priesthood of all believers. Another theological theme that undergirds the importance of volunteers is spiritual gifting. The Bible says that every believer has at least one spiritual gift. You can find these discussed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. 
Most of you listening to this podcast are at least somewhat familiar with the concept of spiritual gifts, and you can refer to those lists if you need a refresher, the lists that are mentioned in those passages of Scripture. But every believer gets at least one spiritual gift, meaning that everyone is gifted for service. And the Bible is very clear that the church works best when all believers mutually use their gifts for supportive service with each other to make a difference in the world we're living. So three theological themes which undergird and which magnify the role of volunteers, the church is an all-volunteer organization, the priesthood of believers, all volunteers have access to God and equal opportunity to represent God to people and people to God, and the spiritual giftedness of all believers. Now, another theological theme that doesn't relate so much to the followers but to the leader is this. Pastors are responsible to be equippers. We are responsible to equip people for the work of service or the work of ministry. And so another theological theme that, that uh, undergirds the importance of volunteers is our role as pastoral leaders as equippers. We are responsible to train, shape, direct people so that they might use their spiritual gifts as priests serving while they're a part of this volunteer movement called the church. We have a theological responsibility to fulfill our unique role in this relationship. And then finally, one other theological theme that undergirds all of this is that service is a pathway to influence or to fulfillment. The Bible says the greatest among you is the servant of all. So service is a pathway to greatness. It's a pathway to personal fulfillment. It's a pathway to personal impact. Service is important. And facilitating people, equipping them, if you will, to fulfill their work of service by using their spiritual gift as a priest in the context of the church, this is the path to fulfillment, to greatness, if you will, as the Bible describes it. So there are theological themes which establish the importance of working with, shaping, guiding, leading, directing, and using volunteers in ministry leadership. Now, I camped down on this at the beginning of the podcast for two reasons. One, I believe theology informs practice, and I think we take our, our cues and our themes of what we do in ministry from what we believe the Bible teaches us about these important subjects. So theology informs ministry. That's why we camp down there, uh, first of all. But we also start there because there's because using volunteers is more than just staffing up an organization or finding a way to use people. Using volunteers is actually a fulfillment of some theological mandates we have which gives it a deeper, richer meaning than just staffing up an organization or making sure a job gets done. So having laid that foundation, let's return to our original question. How do we find more volunteers? Well, let me give you uh, some steps that will help you, and then I want to talk at the last part of the podcast about motivating people and about how to do that and why it's so important. First, the first step to finding more volunteers is to creating legitimate volunteer positions. Creating legitimate volunteer positions. Now, what I mean by that is several things. First, every volunteer position has a job description. 
a written set of expectations that you want fulfilled by the person in this role. Now, obviously, a job description for a volunteer takes into consideration that they may only have, say, three to five hours a week to devote to the task, if that much. So the job description is obviously scaled to what's actually doable by the person, but nevertheless, it is a specific statement of what is expected. So, for example, you are trying to find more volunteer teachers in the preschool of your church. There needs to be a written set of expectations. This is what a preschool teacher does in our church, and this is what we're asking you specifically to do. Job description. Now, as a part of the job description, a second thing that needs to be spelled out are the time expectations. Is this something that can be done at two to five hours a week? Is this something that has to be done on a specific time of day, like Tuesday morning from nine to noon? Or is this something that can be done at a flexible time? Is this something that has some variability to the time expectations? These things need to be clarified as part of the job description, the time expectations for the task. And those time expectations need to be uh, realistically uh, described. For example, my wife is a children's ministry teacher right now in our church, which you might think means that you're asking for a one-hour commitment every week. No. The one-hour commitment is just the time spent leading the actual class session. But there's another hour of commitment time each week that's the setup of the classroom and the preparation for instruction and then the cleanup and the transition out of the instructional time so the room can be used for something else during the week. So now you're up to an hour of instruction and another hour of preparation and uh, recovery. So that's two hours. But now you haven't even thought about the preparation time that's involved. My wife takes her Bible teaching very seriously, so she spends another two to three hours a week studying her lesson, preparing what the Bible says, helping to develop the activities that will reinforce the learning experience, and then tailoring that to the specific children that she has. For example, right now, uh, she has a child in her class that has some special challenges with reading, and so my wife works to develop some learning activities that will specifically appeal to that child and will enable that child to participate more fully in the classroom session. And so there's two to three hours a week of preparation. So teaching this class is at least a five hour a week commitment, two to three hours of preparation uh, prior to coming on Sunday, an hour of preparation and recovery time on Sunday, and an hour of actually conducting the class. So when you lay out the job description, it needs to have the time expectations, and those time expectations need to be uh, specifically spelled out of what you really are expecting a person to be able to do and when you expect them to be able to do those things. Now, some jobs require a specific time commitment, like I just described, but other volunteer responsibilities might be much more flexible. Like, for example, perhaps you're recruiting someone to make a certain number of phone calls every week to follow up on the members of your church who were not present the previous Sunday. Uh, Now, you might say, well, I need you to make these 10 phone calls every week to call and to attempt to follow up on these people. So that can be done in the evening. It can be done in the daytime. It can be done on the weekend. uh, It can be done at various times, but the log just has to be turned in that all of these people were contacted or there was an attempt made to contact each of these people each week. So some of the time expectations can be quite flexible, and that's understandable, but again, they need to be spelled out in relationship to the job expectations. 
A third aspect of creating legitimate volunteer positions besides job descriptions and time expectations is adequate training will be offered for the responsibility. Now, this is that equipping role that pastors and other ministry leaders have. We are responsible to train people to do the work we ask them to do. So, for example, if you are recruiting someone to be a youth leader in your church, there's certain responsibility that comes with that for training that person to do the job. Uh, We will never have effective volunteers if we simply say, hey, we need some youth leaders in our church. Would you like to do it? Yeah, I'd be interested in that. Okay, great. Here's the keys to the van, and there's the classroom, and there's the list of the kids. Go have a good time. I mean, that is not adequate any longer for helping people to know how to do a ministry job or ministry responsibility in a church. It requires adequate training. Now, this training can really be offered in two uh, ways, two broad ways. First, you can offer the training yourself. And as a ministry leader, I've always been involved in training people uh, directly for ministry responsibilities taking time with a volunteer to meet with them, uh, to coach them, to guide them, to instruct them, to help them to know exactly what you want them to do. That's one way of providing the training. But another way of providing the training is just simply making the training resources available and following up to make sure that that training has been done. There are so many good training resources available today. There are conferences you can send people to. There are uh, online uh, programs you can have people work through. There are videos people can watch and books people can read. Uh, There are mentoring relationships that you can structure or arrange. There are all these kinds of ways that people can get training. So you can either train the person directly yourself or you can arrange for their training by some other means And your role is simply to make that training available, provide the accountability to be sure it's done, and if possible and if necessary, perhaps pay for or facilitate the training in whatever way is necessary. So job descriptions, time expectations, and adequate training are a part of creating these legitimate volunteer positions. Another part is providing the necessary resources to do the job. Now, necessary resources... Uh, might be money, it might be curriculum, uh, it might be uh, uh, the, the space in which the job needs to be done. It, it can take any form of these things, but providing the resources for a volunteer to do their job is very significant. When I was the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention, I discovered early on that we had many more needs in the convention than I was ever going to be able to pay enough staff to do. There just simply weren't enough resources. And so we launched a very aggressive volunteer staff campaign to add people to our team in a volunteer role. And we actually added several people who worked as full-time self-salaried employees of the convention who were volunteers. serving in uh, different ways. For example, uh, we had a couple that served as the full-time volunteer coordinators, meaning their job was to help churches find volunteers to come in to do projects for them, like building programs, vacation Bible schools, missions, activities, those kinds of things. This couple's job was to coordinate that on behalf of the convention churches and facilitate volunteer teams coming from outside the convention or from churches within the convention to help other churches. Another couple that worked full-time were a couple that worked full-time 
in working to support churches doing building programs, helping pastors as a consultant related to plans, related to construction materials, related to selection of contractors, related to permitting processes, all those things. So these were two examples of people that we had working on the convention staff in a full-time capacity. We had others that worked in a part-time capacity. For example, we had a a retired convention employee who came back to work on our staff, devoted uh, up to one week a month serving to develop stewardship uh, disciplines and practices in churches, being a consultant and a guide to pastors as they develop stewardship programs for training people in the churches. Well, I could go on and on. I'm giving you these examples because I'm on this topic of necessary resources. What we did with each of these volunteers I've just described to you is we gave them a written job description, clear time expectations, and adequate training to do their job, and then we provided them the necessary resources. And in that case, it meant that for these staff members that were working with the convention, we paid all of their travel expenses, and in one case, we actually even provided them a paid administrative assistant to support their work because it was so significant and consequential to the convention's uh, function. Now, those are what I mean by necessary resources. A volunteer, unless it's a part of the job description or a part of the recruiting pitch, a volunteer should not have to pay their own expenses or their own way to do the work. The church has a responsibility to provide the necessary resources, to buy the curriculum and provide it for the, for the class that's to be taught, to pay for the gas, to support the visitation you're asking the person to do. Uh, to, to make sure that the resources are in hand for the volunteer to actually do their job. Now, you say, well, couldn't the volunteer sometime provide their own resources? Well, if they're asked to do that, that's a part of the job description or it's a part of the request, certainly so. But it should not be an unwritten expectation. It should be a clarified expectation of what you really want the volunteer to do. And then finally, The volunteer, a legitimate volunteer position needs a clear supervisory structure. Volunteers need to know who their supervisor is, who they go to when they have a problem, who they go to for assistance, who they deal with when there are complaints about what they're doing, who they go to and ask a question when they're unsure how to proceed. They need to know who is going to supervise their work. Supervisory structures. For example, again, back referring to the convention, Uh, When I was there and I had these volunteers, sometimes as many as 10 of them working on our team at once, every one of those volunteers had a supervisor. And in most cases, that supervisor was a paid employee of the convention who had that volunteer serving on their team. And I consistently reminded them, treat the volunteer just like every other, quote, employee. Treat them the same way in supervision that you would an employed person. Check on their work. Hold them accountable. Clarify your expectations and help them to meet those expectations. Be available to them when they have problems or difficulties or concerns. Be a good supervisor for these volunteers. You know, sometimes I think that ministry leaders uh, recruit a volunteer, put them in a role, and think, well, I got that one done, check, and they can move on to the next task. No, every volunteer deserves a good supervisor. So the first step to finding more volunteers is creating legitimate volunteer positions. Volunteer positions that have job descriptions, time expectations, adequate training, necessary resources, and supervisory structures. 
All five of these things help a volunteer to know that the role you're asking them to take is consequential, deserves their consideration, and if they agree to do it, will provide some kind of personal outlet, if you will, for fulfilling the ministry responsibility they feel like God has given them. Now, a second step in answering the question, how do we find volunteers, is to match people with opportunities for service and growth. Match people with opportunities for service and growth. Now, this means two things. First, it means you have to have a process to evaluate the gifts and the abilities and the talents and the interests of potential volunteers. And really, you can do this a couple of different ways. Some churches are large enough that they do this in a very formal way. They use spiritual gift testing or ability or talent inventories or some kind of an interview process to discover a person's interests. And in doing this, they're able to discern what is the best use of a potential volunteer. I know one church that has a volunteer person who is their volunteer coordinator, and that person's responsibility is to meet with every new member or every disengaged member and say, how can I help you find a place of service in our church? Let's work with this spiritual gifts inventory. Let's look with an ability and talent inventory. Let's look to your personal interests and what you're passionate about. And let's have a dialogue together and see if we can't discern where you might be most likely to serve effectively in our church. Now, you may say, well, our church is not that large. We don't have anyone that can take on that responsibility. And we don't have any, any really serious formal process about this. Well, I understand that. If you're not able to do a formal process, don't dismiss the importance of an informal one. For example, uh, you as a ministry leader are observing the gifts, abilities, talents, and interests of the potential volunteers in your church. You're seeing their strengths and their weaknesses, and you have an intuitive, if you will, an intuitive sense of what a person would be good at doing or what you think they might uh, be uh, able to ser- where they might be able to serve in a worthwhile capacity. This is somewhat intuitive, but nevertheless, based on the experiences you've had as a ministry leader, your observations of people, and your knowledge of your organization, you can tell sometimes relatively quickly whether a person is suited for a particular task, and if not, where they might be better suited to serve uh, in your church or organization. So as you match people with opportunities for service, you can do it formally or informally, but try to take into consideration who they are and how you can best match them to the best role for them. But then secondarily, you match people with opportunities not only for service, but also for growth. Now, as a ministry leader, I want you to see these volunteer ministry roles as a means for discipling people. A means for discipling people. When you place someone in a volunteer responsibility, you hope that the role stretches them, challenges them, and motivates them in their spiritual growth. So uh, another way to think about getting more volunteers is to think about how you can place people in situations that's going to promote more spiritual growth for them, and this becomes both a motivator for you and for them in the responsibility. So how do you find more volunteers? Create legitimate volunteer positions with these characteristics I've already described, and then match people with opportunities for service by, continue, by considering their gifts, abilities, talents, and interests, doing that either formally or informally, and then match people with opportunities for growth, meaning that you see yourself as placing volunteers 
in roles that are going to challenge them and force them to grow spiritually as a result of taking on the volunteer responsibility. Well, let's close out the podcast with talking about what motivates volunteers and what you can do to enhance their motivation. First, let's talk about it from the negative. There are two demotivators to avoid, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame might work to get someone to take on a responsibility for a very short time, but guilt and shame are not effective long-term motivators for volunteer service. So move away from depending on those. If you're using the word should to motivate volunteers, you are tapping into guilt and shame. Move away from telling people what they should be doing or how they should be feeling or what they should be thinking. Move away from guilt and shame as a source of motivation for volunteers. It just doesn't work. But on the more positive side, here are some self-motivators for volunteers. Now, when I say self-motivator, what I mean is these are motivations that rise up within the volunteer. They're not selfish or self-centered. They're just within the self, if you will, of the volunteer. These motivations can arise. First, Personal contribution to a clear mission or a vision. People want to be a part of something that matters. Challenge people to volunteer to fulfill a mission or a vision. So, for example, rather than saying to someone, hey, we need somebody to watch our kids on Sundays while we have church. It's only for an hour. Uh, Do you think you could do it maybe once a month? Rather than that approach, why don't you say something like this? I want to give you the opportunity to shape a future generation for Jesus Christ. Or, I want to give you the opportunity to lay a foundation for faith in the lives of young children so that as they grow older, they'll be able to embrace what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. That's what I mean by challenging people to make a personal contribution to a clear mission or a clear vision. People want that. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And this is one way to do it. Challenge people to fulfill a mission and vision and show them how a particular volunteer role fits into that and then motivate or, or, and then enable them to do it and watch them be self-motivated in pursuit of that mission or vision. Second, another good motivator is personal satisfaction from being a good steward of gifts and talents. Personal satisfaction. To challenge a person and say, what gifts has God given you? What talents has God given you? Well, I want to give you the opportunity to use those talents and those gifts in a very positive way to make a very significant difference in our church and in God's kingdom. So you have talents for organization. I want to give you an opportunity to be the organizational leader of our youth ministry or the organizational leader of our outreach ministry. You have real talent, a real talent and gift for hospitality. I want to give you the opportunity to direct hospitality and train people to do hospitality in our small group ministry across the homes where people meet in our church. When you challenge people to use their gifts and their talents well 
to, it brings them personal satisfaction. And when you tie that personal satisfaction to specific volunteer responsibilities, it motivates people. A third motivation is personal fulfillment through serving others. I want to give you the opportunity to give yourself away in the name of Jesus. Jesus promised that when we serve others, we achieve greatness, that we come to a level of personal fulfillment that nothing else provides. This Serving in this way in our church, serving in this worship support ministry, serving on this technology team, serving behind the scenes as a protective services leader on our, on our campus on a Sunday, these quiet ways of service will bring you real fulfillment because you will see yourself giving yourself away uh, in the service of Jesus Christ and others. Personal fulfillment through service. Now, this next one may surprise you, but there is also personal motivation that comes from personal growth from the stressors of ministry. For example, I have recruited many people over the years to teach the Bible to others, adults, teenagers, children, preschoolers. And repeatedly, so many times it's become an expected response. I've had those same people come back to me six months later and say, you know, I am learning so much more from the Bible as a teacher than I ever did as a student. The pressure of studying the Bible every week and having a lesson ready has caused me to grow in ways I could have never imagined. Other people have said, you know, I took on this responsibility of leading this preschool ministry or this children's ministry. I took on teaching this high school Bible study class or this senior adult outreach program. And the demands of those volunteer responsibilities have forced me to pray more, to depend on God more, to grow more in my faith. So another motivator for people as volunteers is the personal growth that comes from the stress of ministry. And then finally, the personal spiritual maturity and growth from loving God through serving others. When you start serving as a volunteer, it gives you a sense of satisfaction that you really are honoring God with your life, and that gives you a sense of peace and satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment that really comes no other way. So as you're thinking about motivating volunteers, you say, well, I can't pay them or I can't give them much recognition. Of course, they're not expecting those things. But what you can do is help volunteers understand that by volunteering, they're contributing to a clear mission, they're using their gifts and talents, they're gaining fulfillment through serving others, they're going to grow through the stress of being involved in ministry to others, and they're going to express love to God through their service. And by helping them to understand these outcomes of effective volunteer service, they will find the continued motivation to stay with the task. Well, no ministry organization has all the volunteers they need, but if you'll put into practice what I've, learned, what, what I've taught you today on the podcast, you can increase the number of volunteers you have, increase the quality of the volunteer service you're receiving, find more people experiencing fulfillment in the volunteer roles they have, and most importantly, advance God's kingdom. Volunteers in ministry are important. Put into practice what I've taught you today. Enhance the volunteers in your ministry organization or your church. Do it today as you lead on.